Hi, everyone. Eliza Daly here. You may recognize my voice from previous episodes as a guest. I'm usually on here talking about anything that has to do with physicians and medical groups. I went to write a few weeks ago because I wanted her to rerun one of my favorite episodes on the four ways to prevent a physician shortage. This episode originally came out in May of 2022, and a year later, many organizations are still behind on the four interventions we talked about. But there's more I want to say on one intervention in particular, and that's advanced practice providers. So after we rerun the original episode, I'll be back to share more about how leaders can strategically deploy their APPs in primary care and the research we've done in the last year. Here's Ray with that episode from last year. From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, I want to return to one of my favorite topics, physicians. I am still seeing a lot of headlines and hearing a lot of concern about physician shortages. So today we're going to talk about whether there really is a physician shortage, and we'll talk about the solutions that you can take right now to prevent one. To do that, I've brought one of our resident physician experts, Daniel Kuzmanovich, and a new voice, Sebastian Beckman, who leads quantitative analysis for Advisory Board. Welcome back, Daniel, and welcome to Radio Advisory, Sebastian. Good to be back. Hi, thanks for having me. No pressure, Sebastian, but have you listened to Radio Advisory? I'm actually a devoted Radio Advisory listener. Yes. And obviously before this one, listen to Callback to Daniel's Horsebit episode, since we're continuing that conversation today. <laughs> one of my favorite, every episode of Daniel is a good one, but when we're talking about physicians and when we somehow manage to talk about horse. It's going to be a good episode. So obviously, we've been covering workforce issues quite a bit on Radio Advisory, and we are going to be diving back into the topic of physician shortages, not just because it's an interesting topic, but frankly, we keep seeing alarm over it. Daniel, what are you seeing from the headlines and hearing from the market? When it comes to physician shortages, there's still this debate right now. I think a lot of people find themselves in the camp that, yeah, we are actually going to find ourselves in a physician shortage. There was actually an interesting analysis of ownership of physician practices that sets up more of this, are we going to run out of doctors in America concern that's going along so much. But we are obviously skeptical about this. And frankly, we have been skeptical for some time. Why do we not think that the headlines are accurate here? Why do we think they're horse to quote my (laughs) all-time Oh my God, there's going to be so many bleeps in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) To quote my all-time greatest advisory board episode. I think the reason that we are so skeptical and maybe even more skeptical now is that there's a big difference between bodies and capacity. And those two aren't Hmm. the same thing. You might have a ton of bodies, but not a lot of capacity. We see some of that in nursing. You might not have as many bodies as you might think you need, but still have more capacity than you actually do. And we've been pretty bullish about this. My question is, do we have 
stronger evidence to back this up? If we're even more skeptical today, do we actually have the evidence to back that up? I think we do, because Sebastian asked us a really good question a couple of weeks ago. Yes. So we have a lot of research already that we've had for years that show particular productivity improvements and how they can increase the amount of visits that primary care physicians can take on. So what we did this year is we modeled out how many visits exist and how many visits could exist in the primary care workforce if we all implemented these proven productivity improvements. Hmm. And when we did that, we found there's probably not going to be a primary care shortage. I'm going to resist the temptation here to go deep into how we did this. I think it's really cool. You should go into the show notes, click the link, read the whole thing. And by the way, there's a downloadable methodology to come if you really want to nerd out with us about it. (laughs) Classic data nerd saying, go read all of the methods. The one big caveat, we look at primary care physicians and advanced practice practitioners as equivalent in terms of the number of visits they're able to take on for purposes of primary care demand. And that's for good reason, because in the primary care space, which is the focus of this conversation, we have evidence and strongly believe that APPs can be doing, you know, 90 plus percent of what physicians can be doing. So to Daniel's point of talking about capacity and not just bodies, we need to be looking at advanced practice providers as well as physicians. So I don't want to hide the ball here. We are saying that in the U.S., we will not see a physician shortage. Is that correct? At least not in primary care. And it's not just not a shortage. If you implement all of our conservative estimates, the surplus of visits is actually three times as big as the shortage we would have if we did nothing. It's not just a small, okay, we barely scoot by. It's we could really make providers' lives better in addition to alleviating the shortage if we implement these productivity improvements at scale. Hmm. And is this even true in rural settings? That's where I hear a lot of the biggest concern right now. So our analysis just looked at the national level. So based on Hmm. the math we did here, I can't say confidently X market versus Y market. But because these interventions have such a huge effect, my guess is that most markets could avoid a shortage. Daniel, what do you think about that? Rural markets often get discussed in this kind of construct of, oh, they can't attract or recruit talent. But big, big newsflash, that actually can be an advantage. A lot of rural markets actually become very innovative in their response to some of these shortage components. And I actually think that, yes, our data analysis at the national level, but if you look at what rural markets can do with APPs in a much more sophisticated level than your usual city, I think it's translatable. I want to be careful here. We're saying that the U.S. can completely avoid a physician shortage, at least in primary care. At advisory board, do we have that same message for the rest of the clinical workforce? I think this is one where nuance is important. Primary care, physicians, APPs, capacity, our message is yes, we can completely avoid a shortage. Other parts of the workforce, medical assistants, nurses, that I don't think we're talking about in this construct. I think that we could still be seeing a shortage. We're actually seeing that workforce crisis and shortage right now. But for primary care physicians and primary care APPs and visits, our data says, hey, you actually don't have a shortage if you implement some of these interventions. I would add specialists onto that. So we haven't looked at specialty care, and there's obviously big differences in the supply of orthopedic surgeons, for example, versus neurosurgeons or 
psychiatrists. So big differences in physician supply there as well. But what I'm hearing from both of you is actually a really hopeful message that there is something that leaders can do to solve for the misapplication of provider time and capacity. And to your point, Sebastian, that that's not just going to help us avoid a shortage, but that's actually going to support provider practice. Let's get into what leaders actually need to do. How do you solve for that misapplication of physician time and capacity? We looked at evidence from a host of different advisory board case studies in four categories. Workflow optimization, care team redesign, telemedicine, and other capacity enabling technology. And then for each of those, we looked at the top intervention and what kind of impact that has on the amount of visits a physician or an advanced practice practitioner is able to do over the course of a year. Can you give me an example of what some of those interventions might be in workflow care teams telemedicine and and other enabling technology? Sure. To Sebastian's point, right? There are a number of things that have already been done in primary care to be innovative and effective. We looked at those four categories and we looked at specific interventions that actually make them better. For example, enabling technology, artificially intelligent scribes or natural language processing documentation assistance. That's one such example of, you know, here's an enabling technology that supports primary care physicians. Got it. When it comes to care team redesign, we looked at things like more holistic care team redesign with maybe richer ratios rather than, you know, hey, here's your traditional number of people per physician benchmarked approach. Those are some of the interventions we considered. One thing I want to underscore there is these are all proven interventions. So these are not horizon technologies or things that are in stage two venture capital funding. These are things that real practices are already doing and have been for several years. Do these interventions have equal impact or are some more impactful than others? It's definitely not all exactly the same. So when we look at, you know, which ones actually make the biggest degree of difference, more robust medical assistant staffing ratios as part of a more holistic care team redesign, by far and away, the most impactful intervention you could put out there to improve primary care capacity. Whereas things more about, you know, how do you actually train physicians to better navigate the workflow, that workflow optimization category, that's not as impactful, shall we say, as the MA piece, but it's also got longer legs. It's more sustainable, perhaps. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Are you looking for ways to harness innovation within your healthcare organization? Join us at Advisory Board's Clinical Innovation Summit on August 22nd through the 23rd in Minneapolis to get insight into the core challenges that get in the way of integrating new technologies and tools. Our keynote and interactive sessions will tackle cross-industry conversation, as well as segment-specific takeaways. You'll also get plenty of opportunities to network with fellow healthcare leaders. Learn more about the Clinical Innovation Summit by visiting advisory.com and looking under the Events tab. I know I said that this message is overall 
pretty hopeful, but it's also a pretty wild departure from the familiar narrative about shortages today. And I imagine that our listeners are probably still a little bit skeptical. How attainable are these changes? Not just implementing the workflow intervention, but getting the results that we've modeled out on our end. Two thoughts. One is we've picked the most conservative estimate. So there's actually several Hmm. different interventions you could put in any one of these categories. We're looking at just the impact of one of those interventions. We're assuming that it's not going to have the full impact that we saw at some of the organizations that we interviewed and vetted. It's not going to work exactly the same way at every organization. So conservative estimate, only one intervention instead of a suite of interventions. Even with those assumptions, you still end up with the provider surplus instead of a provider deficit. And what's really big there is what Sebastian pointed out earlier. We took stuff that's not magic, that's not in the future, stuff that actually exists today in primary care capacity, ran the numbers, and then we're very conservative about it and still got, hey, not only do we have enough primary care physicians to provide the visits we need, but we have three times as many if we account for all of these elements of workflow and capacity and time management change. So what happens if an organization succeeds in one but not all? Let's say they can really focus on on holistic care team redesign and they really expand the number of medical assistants that they have, but they're not really able to do asynchronous telehealth yet, or they can't spend the money to invest in documentation assistance or EMR training or even a, a better EMR. What might that mean for that organization? A little bit of something is worth a whole lot more than a whole lot of nothing. Just doing one of these things, right? We looked at four categories, broad suite of interventions. Just doing one of these things can help, can help drastically in terms of improving primary care visit capacity, primary care supply in a particular market or a particular organization. You don't have to do all four. Doing one thing well is a lot more sustainable than doing four things badly or doing nothing at all. Where do you want organizations to start? By far and away, the medical assistant opportunity, the holistic care team redesign opportunity, if you have one option, one place to throw your resources, time and effort, that's probably the big one. It's got wins all around and it's the most impactful, but I can feel someone thinking, yeah, but there aren't a lot of medical assistants out there right now. Yeah, Daniel, you actually said at the beginning that there might be a shortage of medical assistants in parts of the country. It's fair. And that's where we might need to look at technology. Yeah, and if you look at that increased MA staffing ratio, that comprises about half of the savings in provider time. Oh, wow. But the other interventions together comprise the other half, right? So if you're able to get one of those right, you're still making a huge impact on provider capacity. Bottom line is we're not going to be seeing this shortage. And we've talked about what organizations can do to prevent a shortage from happening and perhaps even get to a surplus. Now I want to talk for a moment about how, especially when it comes to approaching these conversations with physicians themselves, even though we're talking about things that can make their lives better. Daniel, you and I know that it is not always that simple when you're going to a group of providers and saying, I want to change the way that you practice medicine, or I want to change the way that you go about your your day. How do you suggest you approach those conversations with doctors? I think about the what's in it for me for physicians. So what I mean by that is these are all interventions that increase the amount of time you have available to focus on direct patient care. So these are all things that reduce the amount of documentation you have to work on, reduce the administrative burden, 
and hopefully in doing so, not only increase the number of visits available, but also reduce the burnout effect of all of that administrative work. Daniel, how would you position that to a physician leader? The way I approach this with a physician leader goes like this. Your docs are working too long doing work that for a lot of the portion of primary care they don't actually like to do that uh, ultimately can have burnout and disengagement benefits. What we're doing with some of these things, I'll pick you know, documentation assistance. I'm getting technology to take over some of the most frustrating parts of a physician's workflow so they can spend more time on patient care. That's right. So if I'm a physician leader, this makes a ton of sense. It reminds me of that Druckerism. There is nothing so useless as making someone more efficient at something they shouldn't be doing in the first place. I'm getting docs back to doing what they should be doing in the first place. Overall, this is an incredibly hopeful conversation. We are saying that you can get a surplus of visits with relatively easy, already proven interventions that not only get us out of a shortage in primary care, but actually support the real lives of the people that we are struggling to support right now. That said, our conversation has been focused on primary care. I know that the analysis didn't go deep into specialty care, but since I have our two experts on the line, do we think these same interventions can support some of the challenges we've seen on the specialty care side? Yes, with the caveat that there's a lot of variability in not just specialty care, but perhaps within a specific specialty. Regular cardiology, general cardiology, and interventional cardiology, very different. That's and right. so with, with the specialty construct, it needs a little bit more nuance and a little bit of unpacking. But there are certainly examples where these types of interventions might be able to reduce capacity constraints and supply constraints in the specialty world. Hmm. Can you give me an example of a specialty that might see some benefit here? I think about dermatology for example, or even psychiatry, telemedicine, virtual visits, e-consults in dermatology. Those are things that actually really have so far been able to extend the bench and increase the supply of dermatology and psychiatry, which are not specialties where we have as much supply as we probably have demand. Because of those interventions brought on by the pandemic, we've seen, hey, we've actually been able to meet some of our dermatology and psychiatry needs through telemedicine and enabling technologies. Well, Daniel, Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. I do want to give you the final word. When it comes to preventing a physician shortage, what is the one thing that you want our listeners to do? First of all, take models with a big grain of salt. In the last episode, Daniel talked about how London had modeled out the amount of cleaning it would have to do after horse droppings, which became irrelevant because of the car. That's right. Our model suffers that same caveat here, right? So we're only looking at what's happening right now and what other organizations have done in the past. There's also some big assumptions in our model, like that APP assumption that we outlined earlier. So any other model that forecasts demand, especially over a long time frame compared to supply, is definitely something you need to be careful of. Definitely take models with a grain, if not a jar of salt, but don't get bogged down in is it perfect, is it not? As a matter of fact, the big thing that our analysis reveals is action, agency. Leaders can do something about this potential physician shortage if there is, in fact, going to be one, or as our modeling suggests, there's not. You can do something, but you don't do something by doing nothing. It's got to be action. It's got to be focus. And right now feels like a really good time, given everything that's going on in the world, to start combating the potential of a future primary care shortage. Well, Daniel, Sebastian, thanks for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. 
Hey there, it's Eliza again. As I said earlier, I want to double click on APPs because we've seen so much growth in this workforce in the past few years, and they're really going to play a pivotal role in primary care going forward. So to do that, I've invited my advisory board colleague and workforce expert, Sydney Mundra, to talk about what we've seen in our research in the year since that original episode was recorded. Sydney, welcome to Radio Advisory. Thanks, Liza. Excited to be here. I think the most important question to start with is where is Kalev right now? Oh, Kalev. Kalev is is my dog for those of you listening, and he is he's laying on the laying on the carpet where I would like to be laying right now, taking a big nap. He's nap employed. Honestly, Pretzel's doing the same thing right now. I feel like dogs are the best coworkers, especially when we work laptop to laptop like we do. Yeah. Yeah, dog takes first place, cat comes in close second. She steps on the keyboard way too frequently. Well, I'm excited to have a conversation with you about the episode we just listened to because a lot has changed in the last year since it originally aired. In particular, workforce shortages have been more enduring than a lot of leaders expected, but APPs are actually one of the few roles where the job outlook remains strong. What does the landscape look like today? Well, right off the bat, you're right, Eliza. This is a truly growing workforce. So much so, I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures APPs like nurses and PAs having a growth rate of anywhere between 30 to 40%, which is way more than average. They're growing so much that we actually got our researchers advisory board to do some modeling to unpack and see when and slash if APPs would become the majority type of primary care clinicians across markets. And what did that data find? Because we've been looking at this for a couple years, and I think we've been predicting that this would happen soon, but it sounds like you have some data and numbers to back it up here. Yeah, APPs have already become the majority in non-metro markets. This means that they are outnumbering the number of family medicine and internal medicine physicians in most of the role markets across the nation. And data shows that happening as early as 2021, which clearly emphasizes the value that these providers offer to areas with potential access issues. So you're telling me it's already happened in rural markets. How about urban markets? So for metro areas, APPs are projected to become the majority in 2032. You know, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of all the different ways that our QI team played with the data, but regardless of how you cut it, APPs becoming the majority of the primary care workforce has already happened in some markets. And at the current rate, it's inevitable across the nation. So our team first started researching APPs over five years ago, and we told leaders then that they needed to start preparing for an APP majority workforce. You're telling us now this has already happened in rural markets. It will be the case soon in urban markets. Candidly, in my own conversations, I've even heard rumors of an APP surplus. Mm. Can you help set the record straight? Eliza, I think we, we, you know, in our research, we have a bit of a hot take here. I think you have a hot take, Sydney. <laughs> Fine, I'll own it. I have a little bit of a hot take here. And I think this requires a little bit of unpacking of what we mean when we say surplus. Because yes, a lot of the models measure APP supply outweighing APP demand, which technically equates to a surplus, right? Um, HRSA and other entities are measuring about 41 states having a surplus of APPs as of 2023. 
resulting in the supply of APPs being about 119% of quote unquote demand. But in my opinion, I think we have to push on that demand piece because often these measurements aren't taking into consideration the ways that APPs can be creatively deployed. In a time where the workforce crisis is at a peak, I don't think any stakeholder should be able to walk away thinking that they and their market has a surplus of APPs if they are truly strategically deploying their APPs, especially if you have existing areas of shortages and or business goals and challenges that you can deploy this workforce against. So what I hear you saying is that having a surplus of APPs isn't a problem. It actually presents an opportunity. And I think you shared data with me that in two thirds of the states where there's currently a physician shortage, there's also a surplus of APPs, which to me seems like a one-to-one solution to that problem. I also love that you just said we need to deploy APPs strategically and creatively because I often see APPs put in these default roles. We're going to deploy them in urgent care or they're going to see overflow from the physician's panel. And at advisory board, we've long said that APPs should practice autonomously. Can you tell us what this autonomous strategic deployment actually looks like in practice? Simply employing more APPs isn't enough. And it's no secret that our position at advisory board for years has been that you need to be able to deploy APPs autonomously. In fact, if you look at the show notes and all of our linked resources, Eliza's name is on a lot of those. Much of the combo before was considering that APPs can take on a large percentage of primary care needs and demands. But I think our new research is pushing us a little further into giving tactical examples of how APPs can also support business need and challenges. So I'd like to give you four examples of this. One, you can deploy them against rural access challenges. Two, they can help with physician burnout by increasing provider capacity. Three, they're a great low risk, low cost way to pilot new services. And four, great for giving care for specific patient populations that are high touch and or require a lot of patient education. Which strategy will be best to use is going to be dependent on your unique organization and what that business challenge is of most priority. But I think we have a good group of different strategies that no matter what your regulatory standards are, you can run after one of these. So what I hear you saying is that kind of the key to autonomous strategic deployment is to have a really clear business goal that you're going to deploy your APPs against. And I want to talk about that first use case you mentioned, because based on the number you shared earlier, rural markets really are foreshadowing what other markets should expect to see across the next decade. So why do APPs work so well in rural primary care? And what would it take to replicate that success in urban and suburban markets? They work so well being deployed in non-metro markets because there's a unique incentive of clinical agency and autonomy. And because of that, we've seen it's a lot easier to hire APPs in this market and has allowed a lot of different organizations to expand into these new regions at a much lower cost. A lot of organizations have been sort of using a hub and spoke model in order to execute on this, where the hubs serve as the base for larger communities with multiple physicians and APPs. And for the rural communities, APPs are owning a a smaller spoke clinic. So they really are the ones running these practices, seeing patients day to day. Correct. 
And if we think about the second part of your question in terms of replicability for urban areas, this would look like finding more opportunities within your existing infrastructure to give APPs more autonomy and clinical agency while deploying them against low risk care delivery. So earlier you toplined a couple different use cases where we see APPs deployed really well. We don't have time to get into them, but I do want to leave our listeners with a little bit of a cliffhanger, a little bit of an incentive to go read the research. Do you have one that's a favorite? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. But I definitely have to say the strategy about kind of leveraging APPs to be the primary provider for those unique patient populations that require a lot of patient education. They are great at delivering specific, detailed, and really holistic care for that patient population. But you'll have to read more about that in the Arctic that we're going to publish. I love it. Leaving everyone with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Well, Sydney, thank you for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks, Eliza. Hope to be back soon. We started this episode talking about the physician shortage, and the big message I want our listeners to take away is that we can avoid those shortages, even in the hardest hit areas, if we put in the hard strategic work. It isn't just about hiring more physicians, more APPs, it's also about using those providers in the right way. And as Sydney and I just talked about, APPs are a big part of that. We have so much research, case studies, toolkits, executive briefings that we'll make sure to link in the show notes. And remember, we're here to help. If you like Radio Advisory, please share it with your networks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Eliza Daly, Katie Anderson, Kristen Myers, and Atticus Roche. The episode was edited by Dan Tyag, with technical support by Chris Phelps and Joe Schramm. Additional support was provided by Carson Sisk, Leanne Elston, and Aaron Collins. Thanks for listening. Workforce shortages have been way more enduring than a Hold lot. On, of- where's the banter? Is there supposed to be? Where's the dog talk? Oh, fine. I'm. I'm not good at banter. I swear, we're gonna have to go. We're gonna have to cut so much of this. <laughs>